both an art and a science, valuations are complex things and their impact is enormous, making the difference between generational wealth creation and a comfortable retirement. At Bizval, we know how tough it is to grow and run a business, which is exactly why we've made valuations simpler. Whether you are using our online tool Bizval Live or reaching out to us for a concierge offering where we spend more time on your numbers and your business and give you detailed feedback, you can be sure that the same techniques being used by professional investors are also being used by us. And with Bizval Bootcamp, we will prepare you for those discussions with investors. Welcome to this episode of the Bizval Podcast uh, with your host, The Finance Ghost. I must tell you, it's been one hell of a day from a tech perspective. Everything I've touched has broken. I have the reverse Midas touch. I even broke my guest's earphones today, which I'm sure work in every single other circumstance except when we logged on to Riverside to record this. So, uh, John Barnes, I'm very sorry for the uh, unexpected death of your earphones. Uh, they'll probably start working as soon as we stop this podcast, but I'm glad we figured out a way to to get around this. Although as we talked about before getting on the show, you almost didn't make it into the office this morning because you forgot your keys. So I'm clearly just rubbing off on everyone today. Uh, no worries. Yeah, I ended up, uh, a neighbor was able to able to let me into the office uh, downstairs. So it all worked out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad it did. So a little bit more about our guest. So John Barnes, you are the co-founder of Pendleton Street Advisors and you are all the way in Columbia, South Carolina. So very far away from me in Cape Town, South Africa. But I do love these kind of international conversations that we get to have and also just to tap into your industry knowledge and experience about the US market, which is obviously a very deep pool of capital. Uh, there are very few other countries in the world, I think, that enjoy quite the levels of, of capital that are sitting in the US. Must be a very interesting place to to ply your trade. And I'm really looking forward to chatting to you just about how you help founders with their exit planning and, and, and a few other things as well. And I must uh, just compliment you on your website. It's something I mentioned to you before we started recording. I really like the way you've kind of set out the different types of clients, the different stages of life that they might be in, in terms of their business life mainly, but also their personal life. I think we forget that a business is really just a collection of humans. And, uh, you know, the one thing we haven't figured out how to do yet in this world is stop people from aging. And the needs change over time. So I think well done on just having a very nice, clear, smartly laid out website. And that's PendletonStreetAdvisors.com. And uh, John, thank you very much for doing this. I'm keen to get into it. Yeah, thank you, Ghost, and I appreciate the uh, compliments on the website. We spend a lot of time just trying to get that right and trying to make it clear to someone who visits the website not only what we do, but who we we do it for. So um, thanks a lot. That's uh, great to see. So the first question, I mean, I know that the answer is that you do agree, but I'm keen to understand why. And, and, and that is, you know, do you agree that the type of advice that is needed by clients tends to vary based on their stage of business. And what are the sort of typical discussions you have with clients around this topic? I'm guessing that this very cool client value proposition and positioning that you've got on your website is really the outcome of many years of actually speaking to clients in the space and understanding their needs and kind of grouping them accordingly. Yes, I, I do agree that it varies, but I would caveat by saying it doesn't vary by much. So all of our clients own own businesses, or, or at least a business, and it's their largest asset in terms of their net worth. It, it's it's the overwhelming asset in terms of a value that, that they have. What makes a business valuable is the same in any stage that they may be in in life or, or in their business. And so a lot of our, our advice is about what does that 
asset need to be worth? And more importantly, when do you need to achieve that target valuation? And so whether you're a takeoff client or a landing client, as, as we sort of denote on our website, the advice on what builds or grows business value is very similar be- between the two. A lot of times what we're doing between those two clients is it's more of a timing issue, more of a, a in some cases, a stage issue. Um, there are certain things that, that a landing client at a later stage in career would not focus on in terms of building valuation versus someone who's a takeoff, which for us, just just for the listeners, you know, takeoff does not mean startup uh, to us. Uh, a, a client who's in, in, in sort of the takeoff phase is probably anywhere between, on the, on the early side, probably three years, and, and on the latter side, between three and seven years in, uh, from the start of their business. Yeah, it's incredibly interesting. And as anyone who has started a business will know, these things take an incredibly long time. I think uh, maybe it was during the pandemic and there was a lot of money floating around. There was lots of stimulus, particularly where you are in the US. Interest rates were basically non-existent in many countries in the world. Uh, South Africa, we always have interest rates and we always have inflation. But uh, even by our standards, it was it was a lot lower than it, it was in the uh, you know, historical levels for us. And I think a lot of people kind of jumped into it and thought, okay, this is a great time to start a business. Let me get rich quick. And there's no get rich quick. <laughs> it just doesn't exist. Uh, you know, you might get lucky and you might get some big contracts early in the journey and you might find that you're matching your old, you know, corporate salary quite quickly. But that can change. I mean, that, I'm sure that's the experience that you see with your clients a lot. It takes years to build something that has any value whatsoever. It does not happen overnight. Well, I will certainly agree with that. Although I think you're also right that during sort of extraordinary times like we had during the pandemic, one company comes to mind where they did sort of start during the pandemic and they were around uh, PPE, you know, kind of the personal protective equipment. And one of the things that they had going for them at that time was hospitals or, or other healthcare organizations would pay immediately for their orders in cash while waiting to receive the goods which is almost the opposite of what usually happens. You, know, you make the order, the company has to go and source everything, pay for it out of working capital, and then when they ship it, they have to wait 30, 60, 90 days for those invoices to pay. Well, it was the exact opposite, where they were getting paid up front. Um, and so with having the cash on hand, they were able to actually go and find the manufacturers and, and the distributors that, that did have product. Those conditions lasted for them for, for over, uh, I think it was 18 months. Um, and then they changed. <laughs> and so to your point that, you know, they had to, uh, had to quickly, uh, not, not really pivot, but they had to quickly uh, gain a, a more um, deeper understanding of working capital, shall we say, and learn how to, how to fund uh, those orders as well as, you know, the world changed and that PPE was not, not as in high of a demand and so on and so forth but uh they they're they're still a going concern today and they're they're doing quite well while they had a quick start um it was fast and furious somewhere there in the middle they had to to sort of learn how to how to be a real business and they they always knew that it would change they you just don't know when it's going to change and so their their business plan wasn't 
totally destroyed or, or built on being paid up front 100% of the time. Yeah, if they were a listed company, then suddenly everyone would have started treating them like Zoom and assuming that this world was going to carry on forever, right? And paying these ridiculous multiples for it. I don't know why that happened. Well, I do know why that happens in listed markets, right? It's because there's just, there's no control. Like anyone can go and just have a go at any stock. Uh, it's not like that in a private company. You can't just walk up and buy shares in a private company at any valuation because you assume things will carry on like that forever. So the valuations don't tend to have this crazy behavioral finance element to them like we saw in Zoom, for example, where everyone assumed that no one would ever meet in person again, ever. <laughs> and uh, go and draw a share price chart of Zoom and you'll see how that, <laughs> how that uh, panned out. So yeah, it's something you must see often because you do work with early stage companies, right? I mean, I saw on the website, on your contact form, you do work with pre, even pre-revenue businesses. And that's as early stage as it gets. I mean, that's literally an idea on a flip chart. And I think, you know, John, to give you some insight, in South Africa, that's almost impossible. So raising money for a business idea on a flip chart and thinking you're going to get external investors and everything else is almost unheard of. Obviously, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, it just doesn't happen. But the U.S. is different, although I would imagine that with interest rates having gone up to where they've gone up to, that world has come under a lot of pressure. Certainly everything I've read has suggested that. So maybe I'm going to open the floor to you, just some insights around how you work with pre-revenue companies. You know, do they raise capital fairly easily or are you helping them more on the strategic planning side rather than necessarily raising money? Yeah, it's interesting you point that out on the website. I would say that we, we interact with pre-revenue companies, but in terms of, of working in a, in a client relationship, we're really not able to do that. And that's because they, they just don't have revenue. They don't have the means to to pay for the services. Um, it, it's more of almost sort of a pro bono um, aspect of our, of our business. And um, a lot of that is because we really enjoy what we do, you know, talking to business owners about sort of what we call the money machinery inside their business. Um, we call it the business of business. You know, we, we don't pretend to be product experts or organizational experts or, or leadership experts. We, we understand finance and finance is at play in any company at any stage. And a lot of what we're talking with, with, with pre-revenue companies here in the US, and again, these are to your point, they might just have an idea and a flip chart, is how will they create cash? It's easy to quote, make money. If you make sales, you have revenue and then you have expenses, but we're talking to them about, hey, don't forget the cash. You know, don't forget that you've got to take the money in. You have a, you have created receivable, you have payables, you know, making sure that your budgeting is sound, um, that your pro formas actually can withstand some bumps and bruises that you, you haven't pro forma uh, perfection, um, you know, just to kind of check a box off on your business plan where it's like, okay, I've got some numbers on a spreadsheet, you know, let's keep going. Um, that's a lot of what we're doing with, with pre-revenue is just is sort of teaching them and helping them understand things that even in business schools in the U.S. do not teach. No business school in the U.S. teaches an entrepreneur how to run a business. Um, they may teach them very well how to track metrics in their business. They may teach them sort of how uh, businesses maybe operate. But in terms of what we call the business of business, where no matter what industry you're in, uh, whether you're high growth, low growth, uh, mature company, 
you still have to to deal with those with those factors and uh, we just want to help give some some basic skills and just to let people know that we're out there I mean in a way you could think of it as a prospecting activity so that when they do begin to have real sort of money questions or money issues in their business they'll they'll remember that we were willing to help them when they really could not help us if you will they couldn't couldn't become a client and and that has returned returned in spades for us. Can I just touch on that point around, you know, is it more difficult now for these businesses to raise funding than it was in the pandemic? I mean, is my assumption from many thousands of kilometers away correct? You know, actually, I think it's always been sort of difficult to raise capital that just because a lot of capital was available during the pandemic, a lot of that capital was was reserved for companies that were going concerns that had payrolls because a lot of uh, pandemic funding in the United States was based on your payroll tax returns. So if you were a new company and just starting out and you had never, never made uh, or never paid employees, you were completely ineligible for that kind of funding. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. That's very, very interesting. Yeah. And so that was for companies that were that were operating pre-pandemic uh, and, and the, the thought was to help them continue to operate because 53% of the jobs in the U.S. are found in companies with fewer than 50 employees. So a huge part of our economy are in small to quite small businesses. You know, they're not your large public corporations. Uh, that, that hold most of the employment in the United States. Uh, but getting back to, to fundraising, I think fundraising has always been particularly difficult. Now, it depends on the region of the country you're in. You know, the U.S. is a large country. If you're on the West Coast and you got Silicon Valley, uh, that's a highly competitive landscape, lots of capital. They, they've been um, doing that for multiple generations. I live in the Southeastern United States. Um, which has not caught on to those trends as quickly as the rest, maybe in the Northeast, like the New York City area, uh, the West Coast. We're in, we're in the Southeast, you know, our larger cities are Atlanta, Charlotte, Miami, Florida. And um, it's just a different sort of part of the economy here. Uh, we're catching up, but uh, I think it's, it's generally difficult for people with even new ideas to, to convince money uh, where to go. Also, the ecosystem of investors. You have to remember the United States, Silicon Valley has been doing this since literally Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard uh, had their company in the 50s. And so they've got almost two generations now of mature startup investors operating out there. In the southeastern United States, um, a lot of capital was made on real estate. Um, textile manufacturing and oddly enough um, small bank small banks and so that capital is used to making investments in those kind of areas um, and so you, you've had a lot of investor education that needs to happen and I'm speaking in pretty broad generalities here but that's what we've seen um, over, over since we've been doing this and in, in that uh, that ecosystem is developing but we've got some catching up to do yeah people from outside the US myself included we we understand how big the US is but we also don't you know and it's it's really interesting to bring that point home which is Silicon Valley is a completely different universe to basically everywhere else in the world. Correct. Not just everywhere else in the U.S., everywhere else in the world. Correct. There's nothing else like that. That phenomenon cannot be found anywhere else on, on the planet. And even for us in the U.S., I live about as far from Silicon Valley as you can get and be in the continental U.S., and um, it, it still seems very, very far away. And the other thing that people always say about the U.S. is if you're just big in one state, literally one state, 
you are a big business. You know, if you are the biggest fill in the blank in Texas, you're huge. You're absolutely huge. I don't know how many people live in the state that you're in. I'd be interested to know. I mean, in South Africa, the official population is what, 65, 70 million. I mean, it varies, <laughs> which tells you everything you need to know about how well we know our population statistics down here. How many people in the state that you live in? Uh, 5.1 million. Uh, but in our neighboring state to the north, North Carolina has more than double that amount. And then to the west, uh, the state of Georgia, where Atlanta uh, is located, has um, almost as much as North Carolina. So we're, we're, we have two bordering states uh, that both have double, at least double the population. Um, we have no Fortune 500 companies headquartered in our state. Um, Georgia has 16. Uh, North Carolina has 11. Uh, this is sort of a, a, a passion point for me also in terms of attracting more capital and more larger businesses to our state. There's a lot of head scratching going on here as to what you know is, is sort of stopping that phenomenon. We have low taxes as a state. We have uh, great weather, uh, good, tr pretty good transportation systems in terms of interstate highways and things like that. But for whatever reason, the, the, the money has stopped at North Carolina and Georgia, if you will, and has not made its way into, into our state. But that's, that's, that's changing. And I can almost guarantee you, if you did the maths around, you know, the, the spending power inside South Carolina, it's probably more than, I mean, I don't know. It sounds like a relatively small state, so maybe not the whole of South Africa, but a big chunk. And if you add in Georgia and North Carolina, I can almost guarantee you it's bigger spending power than the whole of South Africa. And we're a BRICS nation, you know, and I know the R in BRICS is a swear word right now and, and, and deservedly so. But the reality is we are a big emerging market and it's still so tiny in comparison to the US and even then to bring the point you know back to where it started even then as big as the US is outside of silicon valley raising money pre-revenue is difficult like that's been an interesting learning for me on this podcast is i thought it was easier than that in the US even outside of silicon valley and it's not so that is a very a very very interesting insights well as i say i think you know when you talk about raising capital it, it really goes down to to the heart of what you know, how people view risk. And I had a mentor uh, years ago define risk this way. Um, risk is getting something other than what you expect. And so I think that um, when you think about a startup, most people think, oh, I'm going to lose my money on this because they're not gonna be successful. But risk is actually getting opposite of what you expect. And I think because most people, and again, I mean, I'm talking about just a random selection of people, not necessarily investors, but just, you know, a hundred people that you find on the street, probably 97 out of 100 would see investing in startups as extremely risky that you, you are far more likely to lose your money on that investment than to make money. And so, you know, risk appetites, finding someone with an appetite for risk is rare you know and so and so those people you know have limited amounts of capital who who are able and willing to do that and so yes it, it is very challenging you need to have more than just a good idea loss aversion is a really interesting thing in behavioral finance and you make the point about risk being a different outcome i mean that's exactly right because actually i can only speak for well can't only speak for south africa but certainly down here when you're investing in private companies you're looking for an internal rate of return in rands of sort of 20%, 25%, that's kind of typical. I mean, pre-revenue, you're looking at much higher than that. You know, in the US, it should theoretically be lower than that. Although I would imagine not much lower in terms of people's required return. And what a lot of people don't understand is if you invest in a startup and your return is 10% a year, it's actually a failure because there's no ways you were rewarded for the risk. 
you know, and, and that kind of understanding is just, it's rare. It is rare in the market. Well, it's funny you talk about that. Even when our clients with mature companies, we work very hard to help them understand their own internal rate of return. Most business owners don't make anywhere near what they should in terms of the risk that they're taking with their own capital. Their own capital is always going to be the most expensive capital and the capital with the highest required rate of return in order to be be a good investment. And while we're not trying to help our, our clients win a finance competition like you might find at a, in a business school, we are helping them understand what it means when they're reinvesting profit back into the business. What should they expect in terms of a return on that profit? or if they take the money out of the company and maybe distribute to themselves or they pay down debt, why is that a better option for them uh, versus reinvestment in something that may have a higher rate of return? Um, and, and the way that we know that is we, we help our clients form a, a personal financial plan that really dovetails or, or meshes uh, almost like a zipper. You know, when you zip up both parts of a zipper, how, they, how they, the two sides join together. When they have that personal financial plan that is in tune and aligned with their business planning, or maybe their business planning becomes more aligned with their personal planning, that's where you really, that's where our clients really start seeing uh, the magic, so to speak, happen in, in that alignment. And it goes back to what you said about required rates of return. Makes absolute sense. I mean, working with SMEs, you know, small and medium-sized businesses, the personal financial plan of the founder is, is pretty much intertwined with the business until there's an eventual exit and you know that that wealth then becomes generational wealth it doesn't become tied up in a single business anymore it's now sitting in a family trust it's now been spread out it's diversified if it's big enough it has professional management behind it i mean that is literally how families create generational wealth that is exactly exactly it and i don't want to skip to kind of the end of your client spectrum but that is your typical sort of landing client right so that's someone if i understand correctly and, and, and tell me if i'm wrong but that's someone you know towards the end of their career looking to potentially retire now the question is you know do i sell the business do i put in a professional management team and i collect dividends you know for the rest of my life and hopefully my kids life and my kids kids um you know do i put family members in to run the business that's always very dangerous it happens all the time and it sometimes leads to a family business becoming you know it goes from being a going concern to an ongoing concern which is not what you want uh so i'm, I'm very curious to know um you know if we if we kind of skip all the way to a landing client is that right my understanding of how you how you see these people and the kind of people you work with yes i think that's a that's a very good understanding actually um you're right, they are between, in most cases, five to seven years from, a lot of our clients don't like to use the word retirement. You know, that sort of implies that they, they sell the business and they go away to the, you know, on a permanent holiday to the coast and, and, and never do anything again. I think what they're doing is they're just trying to monetize that investment. You know, it's like any investor, you need an exit strategy. Um, your exit strategy is almost more important than how you got into the investment in the first place. And so with, with a company, um, unlike a, a listed stock, you know, a listed stock, you, you pull up your account, you, you select sell, you hit the button and, and off it goes. But you know, a company is, is more like a, 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 an organism. It, it really is an organism and, and it's much more difficult to sell. It's a little more difficult to value. It certainly has uh, almost no liquidity, if you will. When we're working with those clients, we're, we're trying to help them see their own company as an investor would. Because while a founder 
may have begun a, a company to solve a problem, to develop a, a product that they thought the, that was a, had a good fit in their market. When we talk to our clients, we say, look, the next person or the next group to own, to own this asset is not a founder, they're an investor. And so we, you've got to begin looking at your asset the way that an investor would to see what value they're gonna find um, and we need to, to address that accordingly because this asset for our client plays a major, major role in their financial future. And so naturally you want that to be uh, worth as, as much as it, as it needs to be. And like I said, because we've done the financial planning on the personal side, we have a deep understanding of the target valuation that our client's uh, business needs to achieve. And not only that, because we've worked so much with the outside in terms of buyers and understanding, you know, if it's a public company, what are they looking for? If it's a private equity backed strategic acquirer, what are they looking for? And we help to maneuver and position our client's business financially. Again, not their products, not operationally, but financially to tune the engine, so to speak, so that when an investor looks at it, they see something that they can create value on top of. And that's a key thing to remember too, is an investor not only wants a return that you're getting, they want an enhanced return based on their cost of capital, based on what they're willing to invest on top of the purchase of the company. There's a whole lot of other factors at play that we sort of try to reverse engineer help our client build something into their platform that's able to take on that capital and investment from an outside perspective so that it can continue to, to scale. I like the tune the engine analogy because I love motorsports. And so now you just made me Google NASCAR in South Carolina, which happens at Darlington. So there we have it. Now I've learned <laughs> something else. Is, is that near? Yeah. Is that close to where you are, John? Yes. that's Not really. Uh, that's about, uh, uh, let's see, if I convert to kilometers, that's probably 80 kilometers to the east of me. I'm very impressed with your conversion to kilometers. That That is impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. I was waiting for something in miles. <laughs> so uh, back 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 to business we go, and those are great insights. And I, and I want to kind of deal with the clients that are in the middle, right? And so you've got your takeoff client, and you've got your elevation client. And you'll do a much better job of explaining the difference between the two than I'm going to do. So I'm going to keep quiet, and I'm going to let you explain who those clients are and why their needs are a little bit different. So elevation, uh, you're correct. They are there in the middle. Um, a lot of times, uh, takeoffs, um, you know, in terms of our, our business model, uh, takeoffs become elevation clients. And what that is, is we spend um, probably a year, sometimes two years um, with a lot of deep consulting and, and a lot of hands-on work on a takeoff client to where they've tuned the engine, so to speak, to where it is creating more value, but they don't need our, our services on a even monthly basis and certainly not on a weekly basis. And so we sort of taper the engagement down to what we call elevation or uh, sometimes like cruise altitude, if you will, if you're in an airplane, you know, you're not climbing, you're where you're gonna be for a couple of hours um, on, on the way to your final destination. And it's a way for us to be engaged in the business to stay current on the financials and what's going on from a monitoring standpoint. But it, it's just offered at a lower price point because we've already learned the company. We've already built some things and some structures or helped the, help the uh, founder do that. And we're, we're sort of in a monitoring phase. And so new clients usually don't approach us at, at an elevation level. They were probably a takeoff that's kind of become that way. Uh, we've used that on our website just to describe, you know, kind of what happens in that middle stage when they're neither 
they're not taking off anymore and they're certainly not ready for a landing they're where they're going to spend honestly the majority of their career certainly along the way as things change as as maybe circumstances dictate and their their financial plans change you know we'll we'll re-engage at a deeper level to help make sure those things are going to happen or, or to give the best possible opportunity for those things to happen but it's a way for us to be engaged without honestly by with just uh costing the the client less money yeah that makes sense i mean that that really is what it comes down to with advice there's so many entrepreneurs they need the advice but they can't afford it right and i think the skill that you bring which is that sort of financial planning i mean it's kind of i don't want to say it's an outsourced uh cfo necessarily uh or financial director because obviously you know you're not taking on the sort of financial risk that those people are taking on in terms of understanding the business and its controls and everything else. But I think the strategic thinking around it, there are so few entrepreneurs who can actually go and build out their business in a spreadsheet. That's something I've experienced. And even big businesses, if you go and have a proper dig through and you go and you model out the unit economics or you go and actually put in a proper forecast or you go and just ask questions about how the business makes money, you know, how does it really make money? What do the returns on capital look like? To your point, very few people understand return on capital. They think profit. Am I making a profit? That's all they do. <laughs> yeah. And it's so dangerous because if you're making $1 off a million dollars capital, that is not an attractive business. Right. You know, it's profitable, but it's not attractive. Well, it, I love that you bring up that point because we tell our clients, especially if, if you've got potentially an, an exit coming up and, and by the way a lot of times uh, when we're working with takeoffs um, after a couple of years exits come to find them you know they're not at an age or stage maybe in their life when they're thinking about that but here's why that phenomenon I think happens is because we, we tell our clients the last person you want to to educate you on your own business as a buyer because most of those buyers are investors they understand exactly what you're talking about, Ghost, in, in terms of unit economics. You know, as part of their diligence package, they are going to understand all of those things implicitly, uh, even before they may make an, a financial offer on your company. And so while we tell our clients, listen, we're not saying that you need to be an expert in this, but part of what you've hired us for is we are keeping tabs on all those metrics. We're helping you understand, because that's where you're going to find, if, if we go back to the engine analogy, that's where you're going to find the different components of the engine and you're going to be able to tune those in such a way by, by having a, a, a larger focus on smaller parts, if that makes sense. As opposed to just looking at the organism as a whole, you're, you're able to delve further into the engine to, to find out some, some root cause financial metrics that, that uh, can be managed, frankly. You know, the old saying, if you can measure it, you can manage it. And that's what we're bringing to the table. So our clients uh, tend to have a deeper understanding of what the next person's looking for. They can speak fluently on that, or we can speak on their behalf, whichever they prefer. Um, and that sort of straightens buyers up a little bit uh, when they realize that, oh, not only does this person run a great business that, that we're interested in buying, they actually know why it's a great business financially which we were hoping they wouldn't know so much about because then we can make a lower offer and they won't really understand how to negotiate that objectively to say, no, 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 there's more value here and we know why. And we're going to explain that to you. Uh, that happens all the time uh, with, with our clients and that's one of the more fun parts of the job. 
I love that you brought that up. So that's, that is absolutely what we've tried to build in BizVal. It's a way to actually empower founders to understand what the business is really worth. And even if you can't get an offer at that price, at least you are empowered with the knowledge to say, if I sell for lower than that, I know I'm losing out. I might still choose to do it because I'm tired and I'm over it. In South Africa, John, we say khatful, which means I'm done. I'm tired. I'm finished. Uh, I'm, I'm done. And, uh, you know, the, at least then you understand you're empowered. You know, I should be worth X. I'm taking X minus 20%. You know, I got hurt, but at least I'm out. And, and without this kind of understanding, it's like, how do you negotiate the value of the business? You don't even know. You don't even know where to start. So I think what you're doing to empower founders is very important. And I agree with you. So I did a lot of investment banking in my previous life. And as soon as you are in a sort of deal negotiation and someone is empowered to just understand the lingo and understand the metrics that investors are looking at, to your point, suddenly it is just that much harder to actually bluntly just take advantage of that person. You know, unfortunately, humans are humans they're all looking for the best deal and in business as long as it's legal beyond that there aren't many rules unfortunately you would hope that there are but that's how humans behave so if you're expecting the other side to help you get a great deal uh you know maybe you're really lucky and a very altruistic person walks in the door and is keen to just do a very fair deal and these people do exist and thank goodness they do but they are rare you can't rely on that person walking through the door. You've got to assume someone's going to come in and try and get the best imaginable deal for themselves at your expense. And you need to empower yourself accordingly. Yes, I could not agree more. I mean, we, we do see ourselves um, as, you know, it, it, kind of the origin of the, of the word client. Um, just a little bit of a, a etymology lesson uh, comes from a sort of an old French word that's not used anymore, but it means to be under one's protection. And so with our clients, you know, when, when they're in that phase, when a, when, a, when a potential buyer comes, I mean, we take that aspect very seriously where that client is under our protection. Well, that's where we, we sort of um, saying in the U.S., we go to bat, you know, we, we uh, like a baseball analogy, we, we go to bat for that client um, to help the, the buyer understand like, no, the, this person has a deep understanding of, of, of the value drivers in their business from a from a financial metric standpoint, and um, I'll never forget we had a, a buyer we had a client that that was in um a mining business, and they were being approached by a, a private equity backed um, basically acquisition machine that had done 19 acquisitions in almost four years where they were buying up our, our clients mined uh, sand we did a deal with them um the the average um ebitda multiple that that the acquirer had done was about a, about a nine times um ebitda well our client got 12 times and i called the acquiring ceo about 30 days after after the close because we had gotten to know each other um during during the process and and we got we got along pretty well and i called him and i said hey how's it how's it going with the new operation oh it's going fine and we chit-chatted for a bit, but then he said, you know what? That's the last time that we're going to buy a client or, or buy a business who has advisors. And I said, well, why, you know, I'm like, well, why is that? He said, well, you know why, you know, because we did 19 acquisitions at nine times and we bought your guys for 12 times. And I asked him, I said, well, did you get a bad deal? Was it a bad investment? He's like, well, no, that's why we did it. He said, but you guys knew what to say and it was basically we, you can't argue with math you know and that's where back to to your original point goes we want to empower our clients uh, because they're they're going to an, an unfair fight 
when they're selling their business, especially to a larger, more, more well-funded acquirer. And we don't want them to, to miss out on things that honestly they would never know that they missed, but for, you know, having, having that knowledge and having that built into the financials of their business. In other words, it's real stuff that's there that can be measured. It, it's not a good marketing deck. It, it's not a, a great sales job, if you will. It's, it's, it's solid and it's mathematical and it can be proven. But you've got to know how to how to talk about it, and you've got to know how to demonstrate that uh, in the numbers. Yeah, oh, I agree with you so much. It's brilliant. So, John, as a final thing, because we're out of time, so I decided to go onto Google Maps. So, from Colombia to San Francisco, let's see if you know the answer to this. How long will it take you to drive there? Apparently, ooh, drive? I mean, no one would, right? You'd go and get on an airplane. <laughs> But if you were to drive, yeah, I mean that's probably probably fifty six or more hours. Uh, not quite as bad as that. So according to Google, uh, this thing reckons forty hours, four zero. And the reason I use that, so South Africa is very much a culture of road trips, and if you're going to drive from Cape Town to sort of Johannesburg, which is not the absolute northern part of the country, but I mean it's pretty close. You know, you're kind of looking at, oh, what is it? I'm going to embarrass myself now. It's about fourteen, fifteen hours roughly. You know, and that pretty much gets you across South Africa at the end of the day. It gets you from one economic hub to the other. Let me say that. And in the US, 40 hours. So it's it's just a a really good reminder of how slow American cars are. No, I'm kidding. Of how big of how big this place actually is. It's 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 incredible. So uh, John, thank you for sharing your insights into the US market and it really I think just helps founders anywhere in the world to just understand I think some of the structural differences, you know, the one the one final comment I'll make is we speak to a lot of businesses in the UK and a lot of advisors there. And what seems to be happening in the UK at the moment, services businesses are changing hands at really, really low multiples, like weirdly low, three times, four times, but for an established proper services business. And you have to wonder, you know, for the owner of that business, why are you letting someone else make a 40% a year return off your hard work? You know, by the time all is said and done and you've looked in a few years time at what that IRR looks like. And then we have that client you helped. You got a 12 times EBITDA. I can tell you that there are many companies listed on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange down here that cannot get 12 times EBITDA. Never mind a private business in the US. So knowledge is power. It absolutely is. And I think that's why I'm passionate about what we're doing at, at Boswell and certainly you know, on this podcast. So John, thank you for your time. And uh, are you quite active on, on LinkedIn if anyone wants to follow you and, and check out what you're up to? Yes, um, I, I try to post almost daily, at least during the, during the business week. And so you can find me there on, on LinkedIn. Um, also, I think you mentioned our website, PendletonStreetAdvisors.com. Uh, We're there. And um, yeah, I would love, love to hear from hear from your listeners but I, I really appreciate the opportunity ghost to, to talk about what we're doing and a little bit about how we do it it, it really is a labor of love for us um, I think if I even if I were you know um, financially able uh, and didn't need to, to take a salary out of the business I would probably still do this for free because you know like you said earlier business really is about people what you're doing is almost kind of kind of off to the side it's just a, a collection of people trying to cooperate for some you know great greater good and and it, it really it really is a privilege to be a part of that to be a part of our clients lives it's an intensely personal thing also for the for the business owner uh, when you begin to to look under the hood so to speak and and understand what what makes a business tick financially and we're just we're really uh, grateful and thankful that our clients invite us into that. John, thank you so much for your time. And to our listeners, go find John Barnes on 
LinkedIn, go and check out Pendleton Street Business Advisors, go and learn, and of course, give us feedback. We love getting it. So John, thank you so much, and uh, maybe we'll chat again in future. I hope so, Gus. Thank you very much.